Would you please take your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 3? We're going to cover the first six verses of Mark 3 this morning. And for several weeks now, we've been talking through a set of controversies. There are five of them. Ways in which Jesus and the religious leaders were at odds. So this will be the last time we'll look at this outline. But from the beginning of chapter 2, those first 12 verses, the, what they were conflicted with Jesus over was his ability to forgive sins. And he said, the Son of Man is able to forgive sins, and here's proof I'm going to heal this paralytic. And later they picked on him, he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And I can't believe that he would associate with them in that way. And then verses 18 to 22, that the disciples of John fast, the disciples of the Pharisees fast. Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? And he said, because I am the bridegroom. And the friends of the bridegroom can't be sad and mourning and fasting when they're with the bridegroom. There will come a time later that it will be appropriate for them to fast. Then last week we dealt with the disciples were hungry and they wanted a little snack. So they were walking through the grain fields and they plucked some grains and rubbed them together and then ate the grains. And the Pharisees said, ha, we saw them. We know they broke the law because they are reaping, harvesting, and threshing on the Sabbath. And that is wrong. What do you have to say about that, Jesus? And he said, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And he brought up an example from the Old Testament to show them that David and his companions, his friends who were with him, had broken the law and nobody had any problem with it because they were hungry. They were going to starve. They'd been on the run for two days. And that brings us to our section today that also has to do with the Sabbath. And in this case, Jesus is going to heal a man on the Sabbath. So by way of quick review, most of you were here last week, we talked about how important the Sabbath is to the Jewish people. The people of Israel, God had given them the Sabbath in the Ten Commandments, but said, this is a special sign I want you to remember and, and that's actually the command that's in that one of the commandments, the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, to keep it set apart. So God did not want them to work on the Sabbath. He wanted them to take a day off. And that would set them apart from the nations around them. He was giving them rest one day a week after he'd given their ancestors 400 years of work with no days off probably during the slavery in Egypt. So when Jesus started following the law, the fourth commandment, instead of the traditions that they had developed over the centuries, now all of a sudden it felt to them as if he was declaring war on their system because, frankly, he was declaring war on their system. And that's what was going on. And so they are taking serious offense at what Jesus is doing and what his disciples are doing and what he's saying. Now, they had developed over the centuries a very complicated, burdensome list of what people could and could not do on the Sabbath. We talked about a little bit of it last week. And as I studied and listened to people's sermons, I, I heard that there are actually 39 different sections that they divided this into. They had 39 headings, if you will, of ways that you could break the Sabbath law. And under each of the 39, they had 39 subpoints. And when you multiply that out, that's over 1,500 ways that you could break the fourth commandment. That's how they had codified and complicated this thing. Here's some examples. 
These are the sillier ones. You may have come across them before. You weren't allowed to spit in the dirt on the Sabbath day. Do you know why? You could spit on a rock, but you couldn't spit in the dirt because if you spit in the dirt and there was a little bit of a slope, then your spittle was going to make a little bit of a, a, a ridge there as it flowed down, and that would be the, like plowing. So you couldn't do that because plowing is work. You with me? That was what they thought. Women, in particular, were not supposed to look in the mirror on the Sabbath day. Because if they did, they might see a gray hair. And they might be tempted to pluck the gray hair, to pull it out. And of course, that would be harvesting. And that would be work and against law. So it sounds so silly to us, but they believed, many of them sincerely, that we're just doing our best to keep the law. And, and what God had intended to be a blessing to them a day of rest had become a burden to them that there are all these crazy rules that we have to keep. So with that brief review in mind, let's read our verses. Would you stand with me, please? Hopefully you've had a chance to find the passage. Just six verses. And I had intended for all this to be in one sermon, and that's not what God had. And, and I'm hopefully going to be able to bring out some other things in application in this second half today by splitting it in two. So this is chapter three, verse one. And Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. And they watched him closely whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. Then he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. So when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this passage, for the opportunity we have to study it together today. I ask for your help. Pray that you would give us understanding, that you would give us hearts that are ready to change as your Holy Spirit works on us. I pray that you would help my voice to cooperate better than it has so far this morning and that you would, by your Holy Spirit, use me to teach your word this morning, that I would be clear, that I would be accurate with your text and in its application, that your Holy Spirit would convict us where we need it, that your Holy Spirit would encourage us where we need that. There may easily be both categories of people here in this room and others who may have tuned in online. And so we thank you for each one. We thank you that you care about each of us, that you have a plan for each of us. So give us understanding, and may we rejoice in the understanding that you give. Please accomplish your will through your word in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This was originally one sermon, so I gave you two points, so I'll briefly tell you what it was last week we talked about 
human need trumps religious tradition. Last week, we were looking at Jesus' disciples. They were not breaking the law or sinning by plucking heads of grain to eat for that snack on the Sabbath. That was okay. Jesus knew it was okay. Jesus was telling the, the religious leaders, it's okay. What did he ask him? Have you not read? He pointed them back to the scriptures instead of their oral relay of their traditions. This week, <coughs> we're going to read that Jesus healed a man with a withered hand. We just read that section. That was good. I don't think anybody would have questioned that, but he chose to do it on the Sabbath. And many of the religious leaders questioned that. So he was showing them, once again, that the Lord of the Sabbath was going to do good whenever. He was going to do right. That it was good to do right, whether it was the Sabbath, whether it was Monday, whether it was Thursday. He was going to do what was right. He was going to do what was appropriate. John tells us repeatedly that he had come to do his Father's will. That's what he was focused on. And that included healing this man. So let's go verse by verse through these six verses this morning. This story is described in Matthew and Luke. So all three of what we call the synoptics, the see together gospels, handle this story. And Luke tells us that this did not happen on the same day. Luke says on another Sabbath. So the chapter breaks weren't there. Last week we talked about something that happened on the Sabbath when they were in the grain fields. Today we're going to talk about when they were in the synagogue. It probably was not the same day. Luke tells us another one. Maybe the next one, maybe four weeks later. We don't know. But the point is that it was on the Sabbath. And that's what it says in verse 1. And he, that's Jesus, entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. What is a synagogue? We've talked about that. That's the meeting place. It was both a town hall kind of civil meeting place, but more than anything else, it's where they gathered on the Sabbath day. And they would have someone read a scripture passage. And a, a rabbi, a visiting rabbi sometimes, that's why Jesus got a chance to do so, would read the passage and tell them more about it and tell them what this means. Which synagogue? We don't know. It seems likely that it was in Capernaum, but we don't know that for sure. And what Mark points out to us is that he's there in the synagogue again. That's something we've seen before. But what he wants us to know is that there was a man there who had a withered hand. And one commentary said that this word withered suggests that the affliction was not due to a birth defect. He hadn't been, there, been that way since he was born, but that it happened as an accident. It was an accidental injury or perhaps some disease that had set in. Tradition, not the Bible, tradition says that this man was a mason, a stonemason, and that because this happened to him, he had lost use of his hand and could no longer do his trade and therefore became a beggar. Don't know for sure. Luke adds the detail that it was his right hand. Being a doctor, he thought that was interesting. It, it's the right hand. Perhaps that was his main hand, the one he would write with or that he would use for work. Verse 2 says, us, says that they, and it doesn't actually say who they are, but we, we see pretty quickly, it's the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees. They watched him closely whether he would heal this man on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. When it says they watched him closely, that verb is an imperfect tense. You say, so what? We're not in grammar class. 
What it means is that they did it and kept doing it over and over. It had become their habit. I would put it this way, that they had developed a hobby. They had adopted a new hobby of watching Jesus. And they weren't watching him to learn from him. They were watching him in order to accuse him, as the verse goes on to say. Having a critical attitude comes pretty naturally to all of us. Uh, Somebody said, being a critic doesn't take any talent whatsoever. (laughs) It doesn't. We can all find fault pretty easily with this, that, or the other thing, the food we're eating, the, the, the house, the car, somebody else is driving. You just start looking around, you can find fault. And that's what these people were doing. But it comes naturally to us. It's part of our fallen nature, our sinful flesh. So what are we going to do about it? Are we just going to embrace that part of our sinful flesh and say, oh, well, I'd have the gift of discernment, so I just need to share that with everybody. I'll make sure everybody knows my opinion. Or um, just call them like you see them, right? We have that expression. Are we going to do that and make sure everyone knows everything we have a problem with in the world? Or are we going to allow the Word of God to speak into this part of our lives as well? Well, hopefully we're going to let the Holy Spirit work on us and teach us. So here are a few verses that touch on this idea of criticism and complaint. Psalm 136, verse 1. One of the best things we can do when we are prone to complaint, and I'm talking to myself here as well, when I have a complaining spirit, thanksgiving is the thing to put on. We were talking earlier about put off, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on thanksgiving, being thankful to God. And I just picked Psalm 136, but you could find probably 20 or more of very similar verses in the book of Psalms that say, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Why? For he is good. Why else? For his mercy endures forever. It's unending. The pity that he has for us. The mercy that forgives us. You say, that's Old Testament, Bob. Okay. New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. How many things are we supposed to give thanks in? Everything. That doesn't mean you're thankful for everything, but in all situations, in all circumstances, we're supposed to be thankful. Well, what do I have to be thankful for? Okay. Are you a believer in Jesus? Do you have eternal life with God? That's a good starting point. Most of us have relationship blessings. We have a family. We have friends. A workplace to go to. A school to go to. You say, I'm not thankful for my school. Okay. Do you have any material possessions? Do you have a home to live in? Just get as detailed as you need to. Running water. Air conditioning. I'm thankful for air conditioning. It's a nicer day outside, but I'm still thankful to be in here instead of out there. When it was raining so hard the other day, I was thankful to be inside most of that time. So if you start looking, you may have to get creative. You may have to get very specific. But there are things for us to be thankful for, and that is a great exercise for us when we are being negative, when we are complaining, when we are being critical, tempted to be critical of other people. Now, we read earlier Ephesians chapter 4, this section, and verse 29, I'm coming back to now, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. So no dirty, filthy speech coming out of our mouths. That's so easy for negative speech, sometimes dirty speech, sinful speech to come out of our mouths. 
but to tear people down. I grew up with two sisters, so those of us with siblings, we can relate to this. We understand it is easy to dig and cut and pick. But what are we supposed to do? How many corrupt words are supposed to proceed out of our mouth? Let no, that would be zero. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. But instead, that's the put off, put off the corrupt, the dirty speech, the tearing down speech. Instead, what's going to build up? That's what what that word edification means. Instead, speech that's going to encourage, speech that's going to build up, speech that's going to minister grace to those around us. That's what we're supposed to do. That's the command of the word of God. And so when we are relating to these Pharisees, because we can find fault with everything around us and everyone around us, and the temptation is to be critical and to be harsh and to be negative and to complain and let everybody know what you're unhappy about, that's the time we need, by God's grace, to stop and give thanks. We need to build people up with our words. You with me? Is this making sense? We need to do the opposite of what these were doing. They were sitting there ready to find fault. Why? They were sitting there watching closely to see whether he would heal the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. There are some Bible scholars who wonder if this may have been a setup, that they wanted to make sure that that guy was present in the synagogue that day and that he was in a place where Jesus would see him. Maybe, I don't know. But they expected Jesus to have compassion on this man and heal him. That's what they thought would happen. What does that tell us? These are Jesus' enemies now. These aren't his friends. These are the people who are there to watch him, to find fault with him. And they expected that he would heal the man. Jesus already, by that point, had a reputation of having compassion. He was loving. What's more, Jesus saw the need. They knew he would see and respond to this need. Because the fact is that whoever in this room right now, or maybe joining us online, whoever is the neediest person, spiritually, physically, medically, whoever that neediest person is, Jesus is drawn to that person. He sees. He knows. He knows every one of us by name. He knows the needs that other people in the room know about, but he knows the needs that nobody else in the room knows about. He sees into your heart. He knows your fears. He knows the sin that is tearing you down. He knows all that. And he looks at you in compassion. He looks desiring to meet that need. Because here's some good news. Hebrews chapter 13 tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same Jesus who was in that synagogue showed up that day and that man with the withered hand showed up there and he saw him and he saw this is this person needs help. He hasn't changed. And we know that where two or three are gathered in his name, he's here in the midst. He's with us by his Holy Spirit right now in this room. And he recognizes the needs that are represented here. The big ones, the small ones, the known ones, the secret ones. And he stands willing and able to help he cares he desires to show compassion to us today what day was it mark points it out again to see whether he was going to heal on the sabbath 
to get specific now, I, I gave you some general don't spit and don't pluck gray hairs out, but for our purpose here, we need to understand that the, the rabbinic tradition allowed for healing on the Sabbath only if a life was in danger. So you have somebody who has a terrible cut. You can stop the bleeding, but you can't stitch that person up or do anything positively helpful on the Sabbath. We can deal with that tomorrow. We, Sunday, come back, we'll do your stitches. We'll, we'll give you some, some band-aids. For right now, all we can do is apply pressure and get the bleeding to stop. And that seems so heartless to us. What if, what if our emergency rooms didn't accept anyone on Saturday? Can't come on Saturday, you have to come back tomorrow. And that, that applies to this man too, do you understand? If he had lived this way for a long time, then they would have thought, all right, Jesus, you don't have to heal him today. You should have him come back tomorrow. And Jesus could have done that. You realize that, right? Jesus could have waited till sundown and made the religious leaders happy by not healing in the middle of the Sabbath service. And that would have been okay, except that that would have been reinforcing their tradition that was going against God's intent for his law. He had to bring it to a head. He had to show the religious leaders where they were wrong. And we'll see that he's going to. So they wanted to accuse him. They wanted to accuse him of doing something, helping someone who's not in a life-threatening situation. You're healing him on the Sabbath. Therefore, that is work. Therefore, that is wrong. Why did they want so badly to accuse him? Because, remember, what is the penalty for breaking the Sabbath? Death. Take him out and stone him because he healed somebody in our synagogue on the Sabbath. The nerve. That's how they thought. And it seems so strange to us, but that's what they believed. So Jesus was not going to be limited to healing on a particular day of the week or in a particular location for that matter. So Jesus in verse three said to the man with the withered hand, step forward. And some of us, if we'd been there, it might have cringed. Why would you draw attention to this guy? He has a deformity of some sort. I don't know what it looked like, but there was something that would have been obvious. He might have normally kept it in his sleeve or in his robe. And Jesus is making him stand in front of everybody. That's probably the last thing that man wanted to do, was stand up in front of everybody. He says, step forward, step right into the middle where everybody can see you, where everybody can see your hand. And what Jesus did here is what he's done several times before already, and that is counter them with his own question. He's going to use a logical argument, and he's going to form his own question, because they're, they're watching, they're waiting. And so he says in verse 4, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And it says they kept silent. So Jesus takes what they would have said was a legal problem. And he turns this legal issue into what it really is, a moral issue. Is it right or wrong? Not is it legal or illegal? There are things we can do in the United States, there are things we can do in the state of North Carolina that are legal. And they are wrong. So Jesus is getting to the heart of this. Not according to your tradition, is it okay for this to happen? It's is it right or is it wrong? That's where he's headed with this. 
When he says, is it lawful, he's trying to show the Pharisees, to make them stop and think, is this really what Moses said? Is this really what it means? To examine their tradition and compare it to what God actually said. And then he says to do good or to do evil. What he's doing is framing questions in terms of opposites. Daniel Aiken said that the Pharisees had made this unnecessarily complicated. This should be an easy call. If I just, out of the blue, say, is it right to do right or to do wrong? This is not a trick question. This should be an easy one. And that's what he's saying to them. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And you would expect them to say, to do good, to save life. And what do they say? Crickets. That's all we've got. It is silent in that synagogue. And the air was probably pretty charged as well. They kept silent. Why? Because if they spoke up, they would incriminate themselves. They're pleading the fifth. Why are they doing that? They're doing it out of stubbornness. They would rather keep quiet than admit that they need to change. Answering his question would have to admit wrong, and they were not willing to do that in their pride. Now, Matthew gives us a little more information than Mark does. I'm going to share a parallel here from Matthew. This is chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. Then Jesus said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus is calling them on their hypocrisy, which he did frequently with the religious leaders. He's saying, if you have a sheep and you lead it to water and it falls in a pit, a ditch on the way, you're not going to leave it there until Sunday. You're not going to leave it there on overnight to fend for itself. You're going to reach down and you're going to get it, or, or with your staff, or whatever the case is. You're going to get it out. You do this, and you don't consider it a breaking of the Sabbath. Therefore, it is right to do right on the Sabbath. He uses the word lawful in Matthew. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So that is our main point for this section, that doing good is always right. It is always right to do good. Verse 5 says, And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. I've mentioned before, and I'll continue pointing it out as we go through the book of Mark. Mark was very intentional about recording the emotions of people in their response to jesus and even at times like we see here of jesus emotions here we have anger and we have grief in the description of jesus and what's going on with him what's he doing it says he looked around someone said it was an all-inclusive penetrating look it was looking closely i i try to make eye contact with all of you as i speak I kind of look around and I go over here and I go over there. This was more than that. This was very intentional. He has just asked a question. And he is looking 
very closely at someone to the point that that person starts getting a little bit uncomfortable and maybe the other people in the room start getting uncomfortable and he's looking and he's waiting and he's waiting for a response. And he probably kept that gaze long enough to make a point of it and then he moved on to someone else. And he looked and he was looking around so that someone would answer the question, so that someone would admit that it's not about what's lawful, it's about what is right. Is it right to do good? Is it acceptable to do good and heal this person on the Sabbath? Aren't you all glad I don't usually do that? They were getting nervous over there because I was headed that way next. He looked around, but he didn't just look around. He looked around in anger. And like I said, it, the passages in Matthew and in Luke, we have parallel passages. They don't talk about anger. Mark is the only person who mentions anger, and this is the only time in the Gospels that specifically says Jesus was angry. Now, I know that we can infer there were other times, like when he cleansed the temple, he was angry. So it wasn't the only time God, Jesus ever got angry, but this is the only time that the Bible says. He was looking around in anger. Whom did Jesus become angry with? And it was the religious leaders. Last week we saw, two weeks ago, we saw him eating with the Pharisees, and the, or the publicans and the sinners, the tax collectors and the sinners, those who were the outcasts of society and were considered to be the ones who were ceremonially unclean. He had a problem with the religious leaders for their hypocrisy, for their refusal to acknowledge that the word of God, as written down, is more important than the tradition of people. So I want to take a few minutes, and this is something that had entered my mind even last Sunday morning as I was preparing, and I thought I'd, I'd love to say more about anger because it's coming up right here, and so that's what I'm going to spend a little bit more time with now since we have a second week on this passage. Let's talk about anger. Anybody in the room struggle with anger? You don't really have to raise your hands, but if we were honest, all of us would. We all struggle with anger at different times. There are two Greek words in the New Testament translated as anger. And one of them means passion, energy. The other means agitated, boiling. And this one that we're looking at today is the one that's passion, it's energy. And I'm going to share with you some ideas that I found on gotquestions.com, or .org, sorry. I've referred many of you to that website before. They have some good stuff. And their definition their biblical definition of anger is that it is God-given energy intended to help us solve problems. That's different from the way we usually think about it, isn't it? But biblically, that's it. Because where we're headed here is to talk about something that some people call righteous indignation. Anger that is not sinful. Because we realize there is anger that's not sinful. Let, let's get that out of the way first. Not all anger is sin. You know that, right? It's possible to be, we know that Jesus didn't sin, and here it says it's, he's angry. So that tells us not all anger is sinful anger. Examples of biblical anger, they write, include David's being upset over hearing Nathan the prophet sharing an injustice, that, that parable he gives of the sheep, the little lamb. And then, of course, Jesus being angry by how the temple was being defiled. And we read about that in three of the Gospels. 
But neither of these examples of anger involved self-defense. Instead, it was a defense of others or a defense of a principle. What was Jesus angry with here? The mistreatment of the man with the withered hand. They were using him. Different words come to mind. They were using him. We'll just go with that. They were using him inappropriately, putting him up in front of everybody. They were profiting, they thought, from his misfortune. More, at least as important, maybe more importantly, Jesus is saying, you've got this wrong. This is your tradition. What did God say? What is right? And in that sense, lawful. The command, we looked at earlier in our scripture reading, this is Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. So we need to differentiate emotions from actions. Anger is an emotion. In the same way, sadness, happiness, grief, frustration, excitement, these are all emotions that we feel. And these feelings come naturally and are not sinful in and of themselves. How we act on those emotions can be sinful. If we become angry for some reason, we are not to allow it to prompt sinful actions. And furthermore, we are not supposed to stay angry. We're not supposed to dwell on it. We need to deal with that anger quickly in constructive and God-honoring ways so that it doesn't grow stronger and produce bitterness in our lives. The admonition here in Ephesians is that we need to deal with our anger the same day. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. If we fail to deal with anger constructively and we engage in sinful expressions of anger, verse 27 of that chapter says that we are giving the devil Leverage, we're giving him a foothold in our lives. And it goes on to say that we're supposed to strive to get rid of all anger and the sins that go along with it. So this is a paraphrase, this is not New King James, but it says, get rid of your bitterness, hot tempers, anger, loud quarreling, cursing, and hatred. That's verse 31. Earlier I asked if anybody struggles with anger. Some of us, Either you would say of yourself or others would say of you, oh, he has a hot temper. She has a hot temper. She gets angry easily. He flies off the handle. Where does that come from? It comes from our sin nature, of course. But often, when we're angry, that's not the issue. What I'm about to say is more counseling and psychology. It is not verse by verse inspired. But anger is considered a second emotion so when we become angry it's usually because something else is going on i'm hurt sometimes we say our feelings are hurt so someone said something that offended me and i don't want to deal with that so i immediately get angry and i go on the offensive i attack and that's often what our anger is particularly our sinful anger is that we are covering for ourselves on this emotion that I don't know what to do with or I don't want to deal with. 
And so we substitute and go to anger instead. Instead of allowing the emotion of anger to turn into sinful actions, we need to be kind and merciful and forgive others just as God forgave you because of Christ. That's verse 32 of this same chapter of Ephesians. We need to ask God to fill us with his spirit when we become angry because self-control is supernatural. It comes from the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to be filled by, be walking in the spirit, and then we will not fulfill the works of the flesh, the lust of the flesh. And there, there are other passages we could go to. Many of us studied James recently. Look at James chapter 4. Some ideas about anger are in there. Chapter 3 says that the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. So if this is a difficult area for you, one that you're struggling in right now, I would love to talk more with you or give you more resources or pray with you or just look at other scriptures. You can do that on your own. Lots of easy internet searches on anger and wrath and bitterness. But what are we saying in general about anger? That not all anger is sinful. It's an emotion, but it often leads us to sin because we are not self-controlled by the Holy Spirit when we experience that emotion. And we go after people instead of whatever the real issue is. We attack often verbally. Sometimes it can be violent. Anger leads there as well. So we have to be very careful with this and be sure that we're not hanging on to anger. I just want to relive that, that bad part of my life. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not downplaying that bad things happen to us, okay? But there are some people that you can't talk to them more than five minutes and you'll hear about whatever that crisis in their life is that they have to tell everybody about because they are still bitter and they've never let go. They've never processed and worked through that anger. And that's the bitterness. That's the, the smoldering kind of anger. Maybe we should come back to this at some point because I'm sure that I'm not the only person who struggles with this. But coming back to our passage, how do you know whether your anger is righteous? Because Jesus is exhibiting righteous anger here. He's looking around in anger. So here's some questions that I've thought through, and you can add to these, make your own list. But these are questions I think we should ask ourselves to know whether it is sinful anger or righteous anger. First off, what event or activity exposed your anger? Because first, let's be honest. When you say, he made me angry, that's not true. It exposed the anger that was inside me already. So for that reason, I'm saying, what event or activity exposed your anger? Number two, did someone break your law or God's law? Because we, we get bent out of shape pretty quickly when somebody breaks our law and offends us and doesn't do it the way we wanted to do it or hurt our feelings. Is this actually God's law that's being broken or is it just my own preference? The answer to that question will expose any pride or selfishness that you're experiencing. Number three, what are you going to do with your anger? Should you act on it? If so, how? Can you do so in the self-control that the Holy Spirit gives? I submit to you that when Jesus cleansed the temple, 
You could even say that was violent, but that was under the control of the Holy Spirit. When we experience anger at abuse, at violence, rape, murder, abortion, these things should upset us. There are probably too many things that we're just accustomed to in our culture and our society. There are probably more things that should make us angry, but make sure they're things that break God's law, not our laws. Beyond the anger, it says he was grieved. So it's a temporary, it's a passionate, energetic anger, but the verbs say that the grief stayed with him. The anger came and went. It was an emotion. Grief is an emotion as well, but in this case, the grief came and it stayed. Why? Why was he grieved? What does it say? Uh, I know I've been in Ephesians and other places. I'm coming back. I am in Mark chapter 3, and I'm looking at the fact that he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts. John MacArthur gave a great definition of that, the hardness of their hearts. This phrase refers to an inability to understand because of a rebellious attitude. Why can't I understand it? Why can't I get it? Because my heart is hard. I am rebellious. I don't want to do the right thing. I want to do my thing. And therefore, they couldn't understand. They couldn't get it. That's what he was grieved by. That's what he continued to be grieved by. They just don't get it. Why don't they get it? They don't want to get it. They want their way. They want their power. They want their tradition. They want to be the resident authority on godliness. They want to be considered the most religious, spectacularly wonderful people in the room. And he's taking that away from them. You could say he's rewriting the rules, but he's taking them back to the original rules. He's clarifying the rules. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. Well, doesn't that seem cruel? Here he is with whatever de deformity that he has, and Jesus says, hold it up so everybody can see it. And he could have said, no, I don't want to. He could have said, I can't stretch it out. That's the problem. But what did he do? He says he stretched it out. And as he obeyed, whatever was wrong, Jesus healed. He was able to stretch it out because as he obeyed, the grace of God was enabling the obedience. Are you obeying what God is telling you to do today? I don't necessarily know what that is. But if the Holy Spirit is prompting you to do something, are you sitting there, no, I don't need to do that. No, I don't need to go make that relationship right. No, I don't need to confess that anger. I have a right to feel that way. And Jesus is saying, you're withered. Stretch it out. Come stand in the middle and stretch it out. And you're saying, no, I can't do that. I can't give that up. I can't forgive him. I can't forget what she did to me. And Jesus is saying, you're the neediest person in the room, and I came for you. I am here for you today. Obey. I can't. Do it. I'll help you. 
And that's what he did. His miraculous power allowed him to do something he could not do on his own. But Jesus didn't just automatically heal him. And here he is with his hand at his side. He said, stretch it out. Let me show you what I can do. Obey and I will help you. It says his hand was restored. Further proof from the previous chapter that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Why, why are you making this about anger, Bob? Why are we talking about this so much? We're not finished. Look at verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately, there's our word, immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. They went out and immediately plotted. They've just seen another miracle, and their hearts are hard, and they're rebellious, and they refuse to understand, and they refuse to believe. So instead, they go out and plot with the Herodians. Who are they? They were probably a political party that supported Herod Antipas. We don't know much about them. They show up twice in the Gospels. But probably a political group rather than a religious one like the Pharisees. And what are they meeting together? They're not friends. They would have been pretty much enemies, but they're going to be the enemy of Jesus together. So they're plotting together how they might destroy him. Now, what did Jesus ask them? Can we review a second? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? There's irony here. Because what do they do in response to him doing good on the Sabbath? They go out and plot to kill, to destroy him. I'm going to come to the parallel in Luke one more time. There it says they were filled with rage. The Pharisees went out. They were filled with rage, and they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. That phrase, filled with rage, means that they were filled with a lack of understanding, a madness expressing itself in rage. In other words, they're experiencing the emotion of anger, and they're acting on it in a sinful way by plotting to kill somebody, plotting murder. This is also Mark's first specific reference to Jesus' death. Because they're plotting how to destroy him. And why, why did this come about? Why are they plotting to destroy him? Because they broke, he broke their rules about the Sabbath. And he is usurping their power. No, he's claiming the power as an Messiah. He's the king. He's the one who made the rules. He wrote the rule book. He is the word of God, incarnate. What are the points of these two stories from the Sabbath? That human need trumps religious tradition and that doing good is always right. If there's anyone here this morning, anyone in the room, anyone who's watching online, if you're here without Jesus, you've never put your faith and trust in him, you have an anger problem. You'll probably be closer to call it a wrath problem here's john three thirty six. he who believes in the son has everlasting life if we believe in jesus we have everlasting life but here's the flip side he who does not believe in the son shall not see that everlasting life but the wrath of god abides on him when we are without christ when we are his enemy we're going to see his wrath. 
But if we believe in Jesus, you say, what does that look like? It means to call on him, to pray to him, to believe in him, and to receive everlasting life. Believers, has the Holy Spirit convicted you of a sin today? Something specific that you need to confess and forsake? A critical complaining spirit? Anger that's out of control and sinful? Would you obey? No, I can't do that. He can enable you to do that. And you need to talk to him about it. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I do not know how the Holy Spirit may be dealing with you, but I urge you, obey. Maybe it's more of a positive thing you should be starting. I need to get back to a spirit of thanksgiving. I need to speak out and build people up. Whatever it is, you obey. Father, thank you for the practicality of your word. Thank you for telling us these stories that are true, that are so familiar to us, and yet we sometimes miss the forest for the trees. We sometimes become so familiar that we miss the point. So please, by your Holy Spirit, apply your truth to our lives, and may we obey and change by your grace to be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.